This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Slate Money is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, sleek handles, and shipping right to your door, just in time for the holidays. Right now, get $5 off the Winter Winston set, even if you're a returning customer. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEYHOLIDAY. Hello, and welcome to the Let's Kill All the Lawyers episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show this week, insider trading convictions against two hedge fund managers were overturned in a big setback for the Justice Department and for U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Also, two idiotic dust-ups over customer service. You may have heard about the Harvard Business School professor who went to war with the Chinese restaurant, and there was another similar kind of thing going on in Korean Airlines. And finally, the divorce rate is falling. We will look at marriage and the economy and the economics of marriage. 
And as ever, we will do our usual numbers lightning round. I am joined happily around the table at the Slate offices by regular guest Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hey, Felix. Hello, Jordan. So I am going to start with the news, the big news of the week, at least if you are interested in insider trading. And who is not interested in insider trading? It turns out that Preet Bharara, the superstar U.S. attorney who has been going after insider trading like a man possessed, he has racked up some 83 convictions. Well, he had a very bad day on Wednesday when two of his highest profile convictions were overturned by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Their names were Todd Newman and Anthony Chies, and they were fund managers, portfolio managers at two different hedge funds. Both of those hedge funds ended up closing down with the loss of all of their jobs as a result of the fact that they were first under investigation by, by Barrara and then secondly found guilty of insider trading. But in fact, it turns out, says the Second Circuit, that these guys were not guilty of insider trading. So is this a case of prosecutorial overreach, Jordan? I don't know if it's overreach. I mean, the Second Circuit just essentially said that that the U.S. Attorney's Office needed to prove an element of the crime that they didn't, that there was some sort of, that the people who had given the information, the inside trading or the inside information had to get some personal benefit from it. Um, well, they, they said more than that. Well, they went a bit further than that. Number one, the people giving the information, the tipper needed to get some personal benefit and yeah. there was no personal benefit that they could find. Number two, that the tippee needed to know yes. that there was some kind of personal benefit. And indeed, the tippee needed to know that this was inside information in the first place. And none of this was true. This was a long chain of information. These fund managers were at the end of the chain. They had no idea that it was inside information. They just traded on information which they got from the companies. I mean, in one of the cases, it was actually an investor relations person who came up with this information. They had no idea it was illegal, and yet they get sent to jail for six years. Can this be fair? So, yeah, I mean, I don't... I don't think you can necessarily call it overreach. Prosecutions get uh, overturned on or convictions get overturned on a point of law all the time. I don't think this was necessarily a obvious cut and dry case. Oh, I think I think I, if you read the decision, it was a cut and well, dry no, it's, case. It's the cut, only way they could overturn the conviction was by finding a point of law to overturn no, no, it. No, no, but it's cut. It's cut and dry in retrospect, and uh, you know, I mean, I. A lot of cases seem obvious in retrospect. Um, so I, I'm hesitant to call this prosecutorial overreach. But wasn't I, this ob- obvious at the time? Wasn't everyone saying at the time that this is crazy, that people are going to jail for insider trading that they didn't know they were doing? But didn't he get the indictment? Didn't he get them, the, the court to agree with him? And then it was only the Court of Appeals that disagreed? I mean, if there's one court that says yes, one court that says no, then it's not, by definition, cut and dry, right? Well, I mean, the question is... Whether I mean, okay, there was two questions. One is whether the original court was within its rights to find the defendants guilty. And the original judge, who apparently was chosen by judge shopping because he was known to be, you know, sympathetic to these kind of cases. So my point is that if one court says, yes, these guys are guilty of insider trading, and the other court says, no, absolutely not, we're dismissing this, these indictments with prejudice, which was the actual phrase I read, um, it... 
it seems kind of like in retrospect obvious and clear cut. But if one court says it wasn't obvious, then then by definition it isn't clear cut. So well, I'm no, confused. I think I think it is clear cut, and I think it was clear cut at the time. And I think that what people were worried about at the time was that Preet Bharara had been going after people who were innocent and getting convictions, and this was worrying. Right. And there were two things which were particularly worrying. Number one was that the people who f- who were found guilty did not know that they were insider trading. Right. Now, the original court and the original jury was informed that they didn't need to know that in order to be found guilty. And that was wrong according to the law. And, well, the question of whether they... Yes, that's that. that the, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals has found that, that was wrong according to the law. But just common sense says there's something weird about that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And this goes into like this whole thing that we've discussed before. Why are we just spending all of our energy and all of our time going after sort of the broken windows policy of insider trading, where we just constantly focus on the little guys rather than the big deals? And it, it doesn't seem right. And you're right that it, the mo- most lo- like recent cases seem particularly unreasonable. When you're at the end of a very long chain of information and dozens of people have this information, I think it's ridiculous to start prosecuting the people at the end of the chain for insider information, especially when the people at the beginning of the chain, the tippers, were never convicted or charged with anything at all. I, you know, I, I think they're, they're speaking to Kathy's point. I, I think there's a further irony here in a way, because one of the reasons U.S. Attorney's Office has gone after these cases instead of bigger fish is because they are smaller. But, and it is supposedly easier to prove. It seemed like it was easier to prove these cases. They are more likely to get convictions. It turns out they're not so easy. These are not, this is not low-hanging fruit in the same way they thought. So in a lot of ways, it's turning out to be, I guess, some of the, the entire impulse behind this is, was flawed, was wrong. So I, mean, I, I have a question, though, um, for you, Jordan, yeah, sure. I think everyone agrees on both sides of this debate that it is now going to be much harder to bring and to win insider trading convictions. Yes. Is that a bad thing? You know, I, I, I kind of side with Kathy here in a way because it, it, it seemed almost monomaniacal, right? The degree to which they are focusing on them, that the, that the Southern District was going after these particular cases almost seemingly to the exclusion of other sorts of prosecutions. Um, so I don't necessarily know it's a bad thing. I don't so, but but on the other hand, you, there's another extreme, which is, isn't it like recently we found out that the Senate can actually insider trade legally? I mean, we, do, we don't... Con- Congress has been doing it yeah. for years, but they're, ju- they're just introducing laws making it a little bit harder. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, it, we want consistency at the very least. We don't want it to make it really, really easy to insider trade, nor do we want it to go after people. But I think my, my general feeling is that insider trading is something about as close as it's possible to get to a victimless crime and that you that prosecuting it it should be way down on the list no, no, of no, I'm sorry Felix completely wrong the victim is the free market itself <laughs> <laughs> no, the free market is the thing which is actually working. You, it's price discovery, Kathy. <laughs> well, but people, people's argument against insider trading is that I won't invest in that market if I think it's it's it, like rife with insider trading. And this is actually one of the very interesting things about the Second Circuit decision is they find that there is no law against asymmetric information. There is no statute which says that one person is you know can't have information where another person doesn't have that information. That is the entire premise of Wall Street. And that is the entire premise of Wall Street, that you trade on the information you have and you try and, you know, be smarter than the next guy. But the SEC is built on this, I, this fiction of 
symmetrical information and the level playing field. And I think, frankly, no one believes in that anymore, except for maybe two people at the SEC and Preet Bharara. <laughs> so maybe it's just good riddance to this entire idea. And that's fine. It's fine with me if we agree that it's asymmetrical information, but then don't also convince normal people to invest in the market. Right. And I don't. And I think increasingly, very, very few normal people do invest in the market in that way, you know, uh, uh, buying stocks based on the idea that they know more about them. You know, normal people are increasingly buying index funds now, and stock picking is basically a hobby for rich 50-something white men. Mm-hmm. So, good. Um, let's, let's let the insider trade this insider trade, and the rest of us can just benefit from their price discovery. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe I'm over-egging it a bit. But anyway, we're going to take a short break to tell you about Harry's Razors, because they are... Uh, very wonderful sponsor this week. They have an offer for you. It's called the Winter Winston. And if you type Slate Money Holiday into the coupon code box at harrys.com, you will get the Winter Winston set, which is a chrome razor and three blades and foaming shave gel and shaving cream for $30. And That is whether you're a returning customer or not. You get your $5 off and you can give it to someone as a Christmas present. So who can argue with that? (laughs) So go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give all listeners to this show $5 off the Winter Winston set with the code SLATEMONEYHOLIDAY. It's a special limited time offer. So all customers, whether you've been a Harry's customer or not, can go to harrys.com and to coupon code SLATEMONEYHOLIDAY and get $5 off the Winter Winston. So let's move on to Chinese food. Jordan, what's been going on? All right. I'm going to take a step back with a little bit of an introduction. I, I want to talk about Benjamin Edelman. He's a Harvard Business School professor. And I want to I want to talk about some of his good points first, because we're about to pillory the man, I think, for one of the more <laughs> embarrassing, maybe the most embarrassing moment of his life. But uh, Benjamin Edelman has been, among other things, called uh, the sheriff of the internet uh, by some people. He has uh, got a PhD in economics. He's a, he's a JD from Harvard. Uh, he was working, he, he was a prodigy. I mean, that's really, truly, he was an expert witness for the NFL in a court case by age 19, I believe, at one point. He's a, uh, men- he was a mentee of Alvin Roth, a Nobel Prize winner, and he does a lot of good work on kind of consumer protection on the internet, um, among other places. also has taken on airlines with a consumer complaint. Um, it seems that same impulse that might have driven him to get into the consumer protection arena in the first place might have led him to overstep a bit and wage a war, as the Boston Globe put it, or Boston.com put it, on a local Chinese restaurant that overcharged him $4 on his takeout order. Uh, and uh, Mr. Edelman apparently ordered from the online menu. Uh, when he got his bill, he noticed that everything was about a dollar more. He contacted the restaurant, Szechuan Garden in Brookline, Massachusetts, and brought this up. Uh, they apologized. They said their menu had been out of date. Um, and then things began to escalate. And I think you can only really get a flavor uh, for what happened here if you read just one, one of the shorter emails. But it, it, you really have to hear the text in order to, to sense just how insane this became. He goes... Uh, from Ben Edelman, he goes, thanks for the reply and for explaining what went wrong. We enjoyed the food, but we don't need to trouble you for an updated menu. Under Massachusetts law, it turns out to be a serious violation to advertise one price and charge a different price. I urge you to cease this practice immediately. If you don't know how to update your website, you could remove the website altogether until you are able to correct the error. 
In the interim, I suggest that Sichuan Garden refund me three times the amount of the overcharge. The tripling, the tripling reflects the approach provided under Massachusetts Consumer Protection Statute, MGL 93A, wherein consumers broadly receive triple damages for certain intentional violations. Please refund the $12 to my credit card, or you could mail a check for $12 to my home. It only escalated from there. Um, so I, I, I want to interrupt right there because yes. I think the funny thing for me, and th- there's just so many issues that come up. I mean, and yes. there's been an incredibly um, like voluminous debate on Facebook among my friends about this, among mathematicians, by the way, um, which we'll, we'll come back to. Um, but the thing that really gets me when you read these emails, which are impossible not to read once you start, um, is the intentionality that that Edelman ascribes to this restaurant owner. Well, no, I mean, this is so. This is the weird thing. It is absolutely clear to me that that it was an honest mistake. That Edelman knew it was an honest mistake, and that because he's such a crusader, yes, he went against, he went against them anyway, and that's why the internet has come down so hard on him, and why he's sheepishly gone on the internet and sort of apologized a little bit for maybe one of his past transgressions. But it's precisely because he wasn't going after some big evil corporation; he was going after some guy who was smaller than him. Well. Exactly. And actually, I don't think it's going to surprise listeners. I kind of focused on the lawyer angle of this, which is as an attorney – and this is – you know, there were, there were a lot of reasons to jump on this because the internet hates rich kind of spoiled men, rich <laughs> rich bullies. I mean it's, it's just a law of internet traffic. People – if you find a rich bully, people will read about it. But um, – Except it, for Scott Rudin. They except, like Scott Rudin. Uh, apparently, yeah. But – you know, this story particularly rubbed me the wrong way because he is a lawyer and lawyers have a certain responsibility not to abuse that privilege uh, or, or abuse their, their, you know, their position. Um, and it turns out another law professor or a natural law professor who teaches this, uh, this particular statute in his class uh, named Adam Levitin at Georgetown uh, went and looked at it and he said that Edelman got the law wrong probably. Well, yeah, but of course he got the law wrong. I mean, that was almost beside yeah. the point. He was, you know, well, he was just using his position. Do you know who I am? Oh, ab- and all of that Absolutely. Kind of but that's the thing. If you're, when, there is a problem with lawyers trying to use their JD essentially to bully you know, civilians, whatever you call it, normal people, small business owners. And chances are, if you're unnaturally angry about some kind of customer service slight, uh, you're not in a good position then to go commit an act of statutory interpretation. You might not be seeing things clearly. So it's sort of a, I, I think a, it's good that so much is made of this because it does stand as an example of what not to do if you are a lawyer. Well, listen, I mean, I agree with you that he was essentially a bully, but yeah. I just want to throw in that that the mathematical community is really divided by this because I think some of them are just really sticklers for rules and they don't think of it as as a bullying issue. They think of it as like this is a rule and the guy like and you know the the, the question of whether he got the law wrong is a real problem for them. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea that you would do everything you possibly could to like nab someone who is charging you the wrong amount of money seems perfectly reasonable to have uh, And what's more there's there's what you might call the the Farhad Manju take on this which is the you know, Edelman is, I guess, a bit like vulture funds, that he does things which are distasteful, but which actually benefit all of us. So, for instance... Except Argentinians. A few, um, a few years ago, he pulled the same stunt on a sushi restaurant, which was offering a Groupon, and he wanted to use the Groupon against the prefix, and they said, no, the prefix is a different thing, and he went to war. And 
you know, all of these things are completely insane. And you read the emails and you're like, oh, my God, you are completely insane. And yet, if no one does this, then companies like Groupon get away with ever increasing amounts of consumer crap, you know. And so there's a case to be made that, like, you need a few insane people just to sort of keep the keep the world honest. I totally agree with that. I, I don't know if the ends justify the means here. <laughs> no, no, no. No one is justifying the means. Yeah. I mean, again, like there's a difference between insane and basically making groundless threats. I mean, the, the joke here, the, the joke really... I should come in here and talk about the daughter of the chairman of Korean Airlines. She was placed by her dad in a position in charge of customer service at Korean Air and... She was on a plane which was taxiing away from the gate, and the in New York, right? Purser came up to her and gave her some nuts, which is a nice thing to do. Except for he did it in the wrong way. The nuts were in the bag; they weren't in a ramekin. And he, <laughs> well, no, 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 it gets worse. He um, didn't ask her first if she wanted the nuts. He just gave her the nuts. This set her off in a kind of rage to which only Ben Edelman can be <laughs> sympathetic. And she wound up forcing the pilot to go back to the gate and basically eject this poor guy because he didn't understand the first principles of customer service. This w- is a huge scandal in Korea. And I think that what it shows is that, for, is that what we're really talking about here is a sense of entitlement, that once you, become, once you reach a certain level of privilege... Um, you feel entitled to a certain level of customer service, and it feels good to just shout and scream and bash your feet on the ground and and have a little tantrum against someone, even if that someone is well below you in the pecking order, because you were inconvenienced, goddammit. This is like, you know, that Michael Douglas film from the 80s. What was it called? Uh, Breaking Down, Falling Down. Punching down. There's a chance it came out before I was born. (laughs) There's a chance. I don't know. I don't know exactly. You know, it's funny. I I'm always going to be on the side of the person. You know, the servant. You know, um, and I I'm actually one of those people who, on an airplane, will stand up and stop. Like I'll get in between a flight attendant and an unruly customer. I'll be like, you know, that's not any way you treat another person. Wow, that takes guts. I really am that person, and um, it. But at the same time, it 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 mystifies and appalls me how many people in the comment sections of these articles that you read about this the nut debacle, which by the way never got to the point of talking about nut allergies. I kept on expecting you to get there. Um, <laughs> how many people were just like, oh, I'm so glad she did that because the you know the service is so appalling on on when I'm in first class, and you're just like. <laughs> Who are these people? Who are they? I'll tell you who they are. They're the people who are paying, um, you know, $5,000, which is 10 times as much as the people further back in the plane. For nothing, you know, that extra 10x is basically just for service. You You get a slightly more comfortable seat, which is still less comfortable than your, you know, armchair at home. But... You know, the main thing you do is just people waiting on you hand and foot over the course of the flight. That's why you're paying that money. And any issue you have with them can escalate because you feel like for that kind of money, you deserve the best service. Now, you know, obviously, she was flying for free. And Edelman was only paying 12 bucks. So, you know, I'm and, not sure this really works. And but. he said the meal was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> he had no complaints. So, so much sympathy. Okay, enough of Chinese food. Let's move on, Kathy, to a happier topic. Yeah, so, well, divorces are down. 
That, yeah, you know, that's good. They peaked in 1979. Um, the Upshot did a really amazing job of explaining um, all the ways that the various ways of measuring divorce rates um, are kind of dirty. But there's three different ways of doing it that they thought of, and they're all of them are slightly, in, um, you know, un. un satisfying because the the data is dirty, like people collect data in different ways over time and all sorts of things. But in any case, they're all pretty, uh, it overall paints a robust picture that that divorce is down, it's in fact 24% down. Um, There's another um, New York Times um, opinion piece that I want to discuss as well, which is about um, people, the marriage rate, and in particular, the marriage rate, um, which is lower among people who are less educated and how it's increasing, we can call it the marriage rate gap. That it's 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 there, it's present. People know about it, but it's actually not the first time it's existed. It was actually also true in the Gilded Age, eighteen eighty to nineteen. Basically, the more the inequality goes up, the more the marriage rate gap goes up, and That's the marriage right. rate gap is the degree to which rich people get married compared to the degree to which poor people get. Right, married. exactly. That was the 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 basic line of the piece was in uh, the inequality begets marriage marriage rate gaps. And it's really interesting, and it's a big, hot topic. Jordan, I know you're very involved in it, so maybe you can yeah, throw so, in a few so points. I, this is actually... Um, I, I was really glad to see both articles, because they, they both uh, kind of speak to the way there's kind of two Americas evolving when it comes to marriage and family. Uh, divorce rates are down, especially for educated Americans. They're much... You're much less... I mean... The, and, the, and these are divorce rates, it has to be said. If you don't get married, then it's not like you don't... It's not just the amount of divorce that's going down. It's also the percentage of divorce exactly. that's going down. Yes. It's marriages that end in divorce, that sort of thing. And it, you're especially... I mean, the big point of that Times piece was that the 50... The, the stat you always hear that half of all marriages end in divorce is just kind of bunk now um, from all the best data that we have. It's, it's just not true. Um, but they're especially down for college-educated Americans. Um, at the same time, college-educated Americans are much more likely to get married in the first place and have a, a long, happy relationship. They're not, they're not more likely than they used to be. They're just more likely than non-college educated Yeah, Americans. exactly. They're more likely than non-college educated And Americans. I don't know if you can say it's happy. I mean, we, we just know how often they divorce. <laughs> no, to assist, Let's to, not to, in like well, projections. No, you can. I mean, Justin Wolfers, who wrote yeah. the piece about divorce, has done no. most of the, you know, talk research on this and he has done he has sliced the data any which way till Sunday and he really has come to a very solid conclusion that married people are happier so there's this big question about why is America kind of splitting in half on marriage right on on when when it comes to family and there's one side liberals tend to pin it on the kind of destruction of middle-class jobs, the disappearance of factory work and such. Um, the kind of more right-wing explanation has been this decline in morals. Uh, essentially, we know we just we don't have it in us to get married, to have these sustained relationships. And it's a back and forth, on and on. It's very important for policy. The guy who wrote this New York Times article uh, about the how in, when inequality goes up, the marriage gap widens. Well, that was Justin, right? No, 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 no. That was Andrew. No, Justin wrote the one about divorce. Uh, wrote about divorce. Oh, okay. The, one, the New York Times one, uh, the second one about the, the marriage gap and inequality is by mm-hmm. a guy named Andrew Churlin from Johns Hopkins, who is an incredibly important voice on this topic. He's listened to by a lot of people. He's been called the foremost expert on the way um, children, or said the way marriage, uh, kind of marriage in America and the way it affects children. Have you ever heard of the capstone theory of marriage? Uh, the idea that we essentially used to get married early and we'd build our financial lives as couples and now we get married once we already have our, our careers and established financially. That's his. Um, so the fact that he's coming down and taking the side of saying, like, yes, inequality seems to have some relationship to what happens in our families um, is really important. And he's setting down a marker in this debate that is going to keep going on and on and on. But it, it is, I think, 
something, you know, it is this open question. Is the way our economy changing kind of hollowing out our families in this country? Well, I mean, just a big, really extreme case of the way this is like framed by more right-wing thinkers is that they're basically prescribing marriage to solve the um, economic problems of people who aren't married. Yes. And that does seem simplistic and unreasonable if you think about the larger trends of macroeconomics. Like the inequality um, is highly associated to this marriage gap, and it's probably not going to be solved with a snap of a finger and just a bunch of of, like uneducated people and poor people saying, let's get married, and the economy will then get better. Yeah, exactly. Now, I do want to say on the other side, there are people on the right who've looked at the data and have said, well, if you look at what's happened to men's wages over time, there's just no way that can explain the magnitude of what we've seen happen to marriage. Um, they've run the numbers and they say it just doesn't compute. So this is an academic debate. Yeah, that goes and, back and, and plus, forth. no one's really, I mean, I mean, maybe some people are coming along and, and offering this as a panacea. But the question, the more interesting question, I think, Kathy, is do you think it might help a little bit at the margin? You know, that if more poorer people got married, might that bring up their incomes, bring up their quality of living? And the evidence would seem to just suggest that maybe it would. This isn't the causality isn't entirely in the other direction. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I I want to throw in the one the big difference between the the last Gilded Age and this Gilded Age, if we could call this the new Gilded Age, is that whereas in the last in the last one we didn't get married and we didn't have kids, in this one we don't get married but we do have kids. And um, you know, in the situation of a single mother um, not being married, that is it, it is actually exacerbating the problem of inequality. So yeah, no, I totally, I would love to see more marriage, but I I just think it's not a prescription. You don't just say okay, then we're going to solve this. The real problem is systemic, and we have to think about it as a society and how to address inequality. Of course, the the most equal societies up in, in Scandinavia are also the ones with the lowest marriage rates. Yeah, but they have, so that, that, that's true, but then they also have uh, essentially long-term cohabitation. They're really good at not getting married but staying together, whereas we're getting worse at getting married, but we're still really bad at staying together. <laughs> so that's, yeah, we, we're kind of getting the worst of all worlds here in the U.S. Uh, it's, it's, and, and we're getting older, too. And the other, the, the one kind of cool, in, in, well, I won't say cool because it, it sounds kind of sad, but but it's not really sad that w- people are living longer. So they actually aren't sure that the divorce trends are going to stay down because they're thinking, well, maybe people by the time they're 65 will be like, hey, I'm done with being married and I want to go do something else now. So they actually think like that it's called gray divorce yeah, it might actually be a thing. It's the Al Gore, Alan Tipper Gore effect. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, well, this was a good run. <laughs> you know, that's... And I mean, I, I, f- I feel like there is such a thing as a good divorce, which is like another topic for another day. But I mean, please don't say conscious uncoupling. Please don't say <laughs> I did not say that. No, we didn't. No, no, no. You okay. said that, though. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jordan, you, you have to slap yourself for that one. Ah, oh, damn it. Again, Felix. Again. Oh, again. Okay. Jordan, we're going to move on to the numbers round. What's your number this week? My number is $63,800. Um, and this is sort of an update to a series of numbers we've been talking about on the show. But um, that is the median net worth of a U.S. household. And... According to Edward Wolf, a professor at NYU who tracks this sort of thing, it is officially lower than it was in 1969. American middle-class families are worth less than they were in the 60s. I've suggested this might be the case based on some other numbers I'd seen kind of popping up, um, but Wolf basically made it official, um, which is just a really depressing state about, a statement about the, about the middle class. $63,000? $63,800. It's higher than I thought it would be, honestly. 
So I'm, I'm not as depressed as you are. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> my, my number is um, a nice multiple of that. It's $6.3 billion, which is the median net worth, I guess, of... A hundred thousand. Six point three billion dollars is the um, number of dollars per year that is lost, in a sense, to click fraud on the internet. That if you visit a site like Slate dot com or any other quality website, you will see a bunch of ads on that website, and some people click on the ads. I've never met anyone who follow, fall, fall, falls under that description, but some people do, and the publishers get paid um, at, by the advertisers when that happens. And what's interesting is there seems to be a large business, or a six point three billion dollar business to be precise, in robots clicking those ads. Um, and causing the advertisers to pay the publishers, even though there was no human who ever saw the ad or whoever, you know, got that brand impression. Um, this happens especially on YouTube videos where the uh, where the rates are very high, and it's obviously a multi-billion dollar problem. You know, no one's entirely clear on whether the advertisers are building a certain amount of click fraud into their algorithms and so they're like well you know we'll just discount everything by 25 percent because that's the amount of click fraud that we expect but certainly a lot of publishers out there and the new york times has admitted that even the new york times does it do at some point buy traffic you know there there are places where you can just go along and say can you send me a bunch of traffic because i need traffic number to meet my inventory goals and the people you buy traffic from range in terms of shadiness and some of them are pretty shady and some of that traffic is robots and it's you know and that's fraud quite simply uh, so a couple things about that first of all some people get their bonus based on the click rate so it's they actually don't want to solve this problem um so and the other thing is that i do think it's absolutely incorporated into the price they pay for that the, for the traffic so I, I in some sense it's not really a problem for the free market um <laughs> my number is 78 it's the age of mit dutch astrophysicist walter lewin who was recently um caught sexually harassing students he was stripped of his emeritus status and what was even more controversial is his online open courseware classes, which were really, 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 really popular in physics and possibly the best physics lectures besides Feynman lectures, um, were removed from the MIT website. And so the, the controversy over there in Nerdville, MIT, is like, yes, okay, he shouldn't be an MIT professor, but why did you take away his physics lectures? It's pretty interesting. Why did they take away his physics lectures? Um, so it should be said that it's not like the physics lectures will go away entirely. They'll always live on the web somewhere, like YouTube or wherever. Um, but they didn't want to host them anymore. And I totally, I'm back, I'm backing MIT's decision. If I'm one of the people that was sexually harassed by this professor, I don't want to see his stuff on the MIT website if I'm part of the MIT community. But, you know, other people disagree. Okay. Well, that's it for us this week. Uh, thank you all for listening to Slate Money. And do subscribe to the show. It's quite easy. You search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review. And do continue to write to us, um, as Shing did this week and asked us to talk about Ben Edelman. Thank you. Any kind of comments, complaints, requests, holiday gift ideas, you name it, just send us an email at slate money at slate.com. 
The producer for Slate Money this week was Audrey Quinn. Welcome, Audrey, our new producer. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.